Hi, thank you everyone for joining in today. My name is Brittany Smith. I'm a civil engineering major here at UNF and I'm a junior. I'm here with Professor Daly and we're gonna ask him a couple questions about coastal engineering. Um, I'm gonna start off by just asking um, a little bit about your own professional background and why you chose the field that you did. Um, well, let's see, I uh, started out many years ago uh, at uh, I, I guess it pretty much started, I, I was always, uh, we always vacationed on the beach in Cape Cod when I was a kid, and uh, so, that, you know, I always had an affinity to the ocean, and I started scuba diving when I was young, uh, 15 or 16, and uh, so, and then I started surfing in college, and uh, I was, um, fascinated, you know, with uh, um, underwater technology and stuff like that. And uh, so um, I was born and raised in Delaware and, uh, um, you know, my, uh, we didn't have a lot of financial resources, so it was pretty well set that I was going to go to the University of Delaware, which fortunately was a very good school. And uh, a, uh, I knew I would have to go on to graduate school to get into ocean engineering. But uh, my junior year, I bumped into the man who eventually became my mentor. His name was uh, Robert uh, Dean. He's one of the godfathers of coastal engineering. And uh, I started working for him uh, summer after my junior year. Uh, doing some field work at Ocean City, Maryland, and just got more and more interested in coastal engineering as opposed to uh, um, ocean engineering, which is a bit different. Ocean engineers are sort of a combination of mechanical and electrical engineering in a marine environment. So they build all the toys, all the ROVs and stuff like that, but coastal engineers deal mostly with the beach. So that's how I kind of uh, fell into it. Yeah, yeah. And then what are some of your favorite things about your field? Uh, of course, favorite thing, most favorite thing about my field is, of course, the field work. You get to go out yeah, on the right. beach, <laughs> uh, which uh, on a nice day is great, but on a cold, miserable, rainy day is not so great. But a uh, uh, funny story, I used to ride my bicycle from my apartment to the office when I was in graduate school. And uh, uh, this was at University of Florida. And I would ride by the school's wastewater treatment plant and the environmental engineers would be out there measuring the sludge and things like that. And I always thanked my lucky stars oh, yeah. <laughs> that my field work was out on the beach. <laughs> so uh, uh, I like that. Um, I like the fact that uh, it's a uh, extremely challenging topic dealing with yeah. beach erosion and uh, mother nature, hurricanes, all that sort of thing. It's uh, not, uh, there's still a lot to be uh, discovered and a lot to be uh, accomplished. Yeah. I remember when I was taking your class, you talked about a lot of really pricey projects that you worked on, like million dollar projects. And 
I don't know if those would make it into this, but I just want to know what are some of your favorite or most notable projects that you've worked on. Let's see. Um, I've, I've done a lot of, uh, I started out doing a lot of uh, developing numerical models, and that was uh, when I was on the faculty at uh, Florida Institute of Technology down in Melbourne. And I uh, did that for about 11 years and then started my own company and found a niche in, in doing field uh, instrumentation, oceanographic instrumentation, because most of the big companies uh, didn't want the liability issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had a very small company, uh, always less than five people, so that I didn't have to carry workman's compensation insurance. Yeah, yeah. So, because uh, it involves a lot of scuba diving, and uh, so I've had some very challenging, uh, both physically and uh, financially, uh, risky uh, field projects. Um, probably the two largest, uh, first one was on the St. John's River back in 2009, I believe it was. Uh, my little company actually collected all the field data on the river, lower 20 miles of the river, that the Corps of Engineers used in um, testing their numerical models to uh, apply for the permits to do the Jacksport deepening in order to bring in the, uh, the large, larger container vessels that all the ports up and down the East Coast were now going to compete for. So, uh, so my little company collected all the field data, all oh the goodness. hydrographic data that they uh, required to get their permits. So that one, and then I just did one two years ago at St. Augustine and Inlet. It was a real challenge. Um, um, uh, diving in that inlet, you have a very small window of time before the currents get too strong. Uh, and uh, the visibility is really bad and those sorts of things. So, um, you know, it, uh, a lot of people don't think it's all uh, Jacques Cousteau world, and it certainly isn't. Yeah. Okay, so when I first joined PERG, um, which is the Public Interest Research Group, um, they asked about my major and when I said civil engineering they were like well what does that have to do with the environment why do you care and I think that that kind of made me want to do this even more because I think personally that we as engineers should especially coastal engineering should think about the environment and I want to know your perspective like how do you see the overlap between coastal engineering and the environment um, uh, so much um, of uh, mankind's uh, effect on the near shore is, of course, uh, water pollution. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that, and especially in Florida, uh, you know, the uh, sea turtle nesting is a major issue. And so uh, we're always attempting to uh, do a better job of beach nourishment, for instance, which is actually good for sea turtles. It gives them a place to dig their nest on an otherwise eroded beach. Um, but the, you know, the idea uh, of 
just trying to clean up the, uh, the near shore waters and uh, prevent a lot of the uh, pollution that goes on. Uh, the St. John's River is a prime example. Mm -hmm. I, I, when I was diving in the, in the river, putting in an instrument, I had to take my, my dive gloves off to work a little screw and I nicked uh, my four knuckle or yeah four knuckles on my left hand, and every one of those nicks from a it was they were just from barnacles, but every one of those nicks got infected, and mm -hmm. I almost lost my little finger. It took them six procedures to get rid of the infection in my little finger. So uh, there's uh, lots uh, for engineers should do about cleaning up uh, the environment yeah. uh, along our waterways. Um, okay, so I remember in your Port and Coastal class, we did a lot of, we covered a lot of topics having to do with like beach erosion, jetties, breakwaters, things like that. And so I want to know, how do you go about choosing the materials for these pros projects while you're taking into account environment, the environment and what other things might also be taken into consideration? Right. The, uh, especially if you're building uh, what we call hard structures that might be made out of boulders or concrete or those sorts of things, um, if done properly, they actually enhance the environment. Uh, uh, you know, I've done lots of diving uh, in areas that were nothing but uh, sandy bottom, and there's not much to see. <laughs> uh, we often just find, uh, you know, one or two fish and uh, a couple of sand dollars. Uh, you know, lots of organisms living down in the sand, but uh, uh, you swim up next to a piling in a pier or uh, along a, a jetty and it's usually just teeming with life um, and they've actually uh, recently uh, come to realize that uh, if they uh, when they build concrete structures in the marine environment if they put in additives that lower the pH uh, um, the sponges and uh, corals and things like that love that and will attach. They, they, they like, you know, they, that's how they survive is to attach to a hard structure. Yeah. So, uh, so there's a lot now to material selection. Uh, and uh, you know, they're building uh, artificial reefs uh, to try and mitigate when they do beach nourishment projects and the beach nourishment project happens to have to cover up uh, like some low-lying natural uh, limestone rock or something like that. Um, so uh, we're designing reefs that will attract uh, uh, seagrasses and marine life and um, so that, that part of it be, uh, becomes quite uh, satisfying when you see something like that actually yeah. work. <laughs> yeah, I always thought that was um, really important because whenever you see those structures, you kind of only think of us, you know? It's like, okay, cool, a new pier, we get to fish. We have better waves, we have this, we have that. Mm -hmm. But it actually also helps the environment. So I think that's important to highlight. 
Um, now let's say a structure were to fail. I know that it's very unlikely, but if it were to fail, what not only would be the cost for the engineer to fix it, but also what does this mean for marine life? Um, surprisingly enough, a lot of uh, collapsed uh, structures, particularly uh, concrete piers, uh, become uh, artificial reefs. Okay. And yeah. There's even a case there at the uh, Breakers Hotel down in Palm Beach. Uh, you know, back in the 30s, uh, they had a large uh, concrete pile pier there that was uh, destroyed by a hurricane, and it's now a sacred snorkeling ha habitat. I mean, they they have to they can't nourish the beach near there, which is a real problem for the Breakers Hotel, but uh, the environmental concerns are adamant about uh, not burying that, uh, that, that uh, quote, artificial reef yeah. that was totally uh, inadvertently created. So, uh, so the, uh, when a, now when a structure or something like that collapses and uh, becomes a hazard to navigation or a hazard to people on the beach and things like that. Yeah, it gets very expensive to to pull the debris out of the water and uh, uh, not just from a construction standpoint, but from a weather standpoint. Because yeah. whenever uh, um, you know any type of marine construction takes place, they're always dodging storms and uh, you know the the pier in uh, Jack's Beach uh, suffered damage uh, during uh, Matthew, I think it was. And, and then again, Irma, and they're still re rebuilding that pier. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, it, all, it depends a lot upon uh, what it's made of. Um, that one, the pilings were wooden, and uh, so they it, that doesn't make very good habitat. But uh, So they had to pull all that out of the water to rebuild it. How do they make sure that they get everything? I just want to know. Like um, uh, nowadays, uh, especially if there's the visit, you know, the water visibility is poor, which it is around uh, uh, Northeast Florida. Uh, when I dive, I can rarely see my hand in front yeah. of my face. I they call it diving by braille. You have to feel your way around <laughs> to install the instrument or whatever you're going to do. But they're, the sonars are becoming so so sophisticated now that they can, uh, you know, uh, with the right type of uh, sea conditions, they can spot things as small as a beer can on the bottom of the ocean. So uh, so they just have to keep uh, uh, monitoring, you know, crossing over the site where you know this uh, structure collapsed. Uh, and uh, you know, identify things and pay divers to go down and and uh, and lift them off the bottom and and then they'll put them on a, a crane and pull them, you know, put them on a barge or whatever. Okay, and then also because I know that you said that marine life oftentimes creates their own habitats on the bottom of these piers and things like that. So when you're doing maintenance on something like that, how do you make sure that you're not disrupting any of that? Um, you know, uh, for instance, I've met uh, 
uh, a bunch of professional divers that I had to hire to, to work on the St. Augustine Inlet project. And that's a big part of their work is actually rehabilitating uh, bridge piers, uh, the vents on bridge pilings. And uh, they have to, because they corrode, uh, the rebars in them, they call it spalling, rebars corrode and the, the uh, pilings crack. So they have to encase them in uh, uh, usually a steel mesh of some sort and then grout uh, to rebuild the, uh, the piling. So of course, uh, you know, in, the, in that process, they pretty much have to scrape all the marine life off the piling, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate, but when they're done, the marine life will come right back uh, as, as long as, uh, you know, the substrate, the, the thing they're attaching to is uh, benign to them. Uh, they, you know, uh, they'll always come back. Okay, that's good. And then, how would you, what would you say is some of the largest issues with not only Jacksonville Beach, but also the St. John's River? Um, to me, the water quality in the, in the St. John's River uh, is by far the, the uh, number one uh, issue uh, you know, it's been, uh, there have been people living on that river for, for centuries and uh, a, a lot of uh, their homes still are grandfathered in with septic systems that dump uh, uh, raw sewage right into the river. Um, the amount of uh, fertilizers and pesticides used on people's, you know, trying to keep their backyard looking like a golf course. It's washed into the river and, uh, you know, the St. John's River is probably the most, uh, or the, the, the largest culprit in the fact that the, the water quality and the beach here is really yeah. pretty murky. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's a massive job to try and uh, uh, try and uh, uh, restore a water body that's so large and so long and has so much industrial uh, use, uh, the ports and, you know, port, tax port and everything else. But... Uh, to me, this area, you know, I, I think, I think uh, the St. John's River is is pretty much the most important uh, environmental issue. Yeah. If they really want to make a difference with uh, with uh, what goes on around uh, Jack's Beach and those places, to go diving here, you have to go at least 20 miles offshore to find clear water. Oh my goodness. Well, I know that it's a really large-scale project, but just what do you think would be the best course of action for remediation? Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a uh, uh, urban infrastructure kind of guy, but uh, the more, uh, like I said, the more chemicals, the more pesticides, the more 
sewage you can keep out of the river mm -hmm. and all its tributaries, the better, uh, the, the more conscientious the, uh, the uh, marinas can be uh, to keep uh, oil, you know, oil spills and things like that mm -hmm. uh, out of the water. Um, and, uh, you know, the, a lot of the water quality issue is there's just, just too many nu nutrients in the water because of the uh, fertilizers and those sorts of things. Yeah. So, uh, it's a tough problem, but, uh, you know, t telling someone who doesn't have much money anyway that they have to uh, abandon their septic system and tie into uh, the, the city uh, septic system. Um, you know, even if the private homeowner is not responsible for that to do that, uh, but tax money is a, a major investment. Um, so uh, it come, a lot of it just comes down to money. Yeah, yeah. Let's say that everyone were to immediately start today like stop putting everything into the river, all of that. How long do you think that it would take for the environment to come back to how it should be? Ooh. Um, again, that's sort of out of my area of expertise, yeah, but yeah. Um, anecdotally, um, a lot of the uh, cities uh, around the country, around the world, in fact, uh, I think I know, heard this about Venice, Italy, noticed uh, during the pandemic oh, yeah. when there was a lot less human activity uh, uh, going on uh, at all levels, the water around Venice started clearing up. And so, um, you know, that tells you that if, you know, if you if society really made a concerted effort, um, you know if you just stopped uh, throwing stuff in the river, uh, it would probably be completely cleaned up. At least the water would be cleaned up in a matter of a few years. Yeah. Now, of course, there's lots of uh, uh, polluted sediments in the bottom of the river, and that's a whole nother uh, problem because. Uh, to remove that sediment uh, is expensive. And uh, as you're pulling it out of the water, you're actually reintroducing the toxics that are in the sediment into the water. So um, that's probably a harder problem to tackle than just cleaning up the water yeah. itself. All right, and then my last question for you is, how do you think that the students can get involved, whether it be in person or remotely? Uh, just involved in yeah, involved clean, in cleaning in and making making a difference. Yeah, I think uh, I, I would like to see uh, you know there there are uh, little things that you can do that make all the difference in the world. Like, nothing irritates me more than to go out on the beach after Memorial Day weekend or, you know, some holiday weekend, and somebody's left all their trash there. You know, I almost think that should be a death penalty offense. <laughs> uh, um, 
you know, if you can carry it out there, you can carry it yeah, off the beach yeah. and put, throw it in a trash can. And uh, so if young people would confront their peers or, uh, um, you know, make a concerted effort to clean up after themselves and make sure their their parents and, and other people clean up after themselves, uh, that would make quite a difference. Yeah, I agree entirely. Um, thank you for having, for, sure. thank you for joining me today and letting me ask you a couple questions. Um, okay. That's all. Thank you for listening. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks.